Welcome to the Online Tent Revival, Modern Medium, Old Time Preaching. I'm Pastor James. Let's start today's sermon. As we begin our sermon tonight, let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. Let us pray. God our Father, we pray, Lord, that you will bless us to have a good understanding of your word and the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, O Lord, that you will Bless this time as we look to your word together. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first, I must apologize if you uh, hear a hum in the background. I record this in my dining room, and my wife has moved our uh, chest freezer into this room, so <laughs> I didn't account for that little bit of hum, so I apologize if that's picking up. want to start, as we always do, by looking at our verse for this series. And again, we are taking a whole series on one verse looking at Romans, the 6th chapter, the 23rd verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot understand the good news God has for us if you don't understand who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. It is impossible to explain the gospel without explaining Jesus Christ. Gospel is just that word for good news from the Old English. Uh, the reason that we can't understand the good news without Jesus is because Jesus is the substance of God's good news. Jesus is what God is telling us about. The good news is the good news about Jesus Christ. And we therefore come now to the consideration of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've looked at God, we've looked at sin, we've looked at life and death, but who is Jesus? And right at the beginning, we need to clear up a major but popular misconception. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. I believe I've referred to this before, but I do want to make that clear because you'll notice in this verse, he is not called Jesus Christ, he is called Christ Jesus. Paul didn't get confused here. He's the one who wrote Romans. He didn't get uh, mixed up and put the last name before the first name. This is a title. Uh, Christ means anointed one. Anointing someone by pouring oil on their head meant that the person had been chosen by God and had the Holy Spirit poured out on them so they would serve in a particular office. And there were three offices in, that were specifically referred to as anointed offices. Anyone who had one of these offices was called anointed. Uh, by the way, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Mashiach, from which we get, of course, Messiah. I read an article uh, by a Jewish Christian who reminded uh, the, his readers of that fact. Uh, Christ, of course, is the Greek word, but uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, three offices, though, as I said, were considered anointed. Prophets were chosen by God to be instruments of God's revelation. They spoke God's word to his people so that his people could know him and do his will. Prophets uh, were called anointed because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. It's interesting, uh, you don't often read of a prophet actually being anointed with oil. They sort of skipped the symbol and were simply called anointed because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. 
uh, that pouring out of the Spirit directly marked them. It changed how they spoke. It changed so that their words were inspired and accurate. They were the Word of God, the Word He gave them to speak, just as He gave His Word to, to those who wrote the Scriptures, many of whom were professional prophets. That was their full-time calling. Others were apostles, a similar calling. Uh, some were pastors and some were missionaries and some were historians, perhaps, and weren't prophets at all. Some of them just pulled together material. Uh, Luke, for instance, who wrote Luke and Acts. Uh, he was part of Paul's ministry team, but his great contribution to the scripture was researching the life of Christ and writing down the life of the early church, especially Peter and Paul. Uh, so men like that were anointed by the Holy Spirit. They might not have had the anointing with oil, but it didn't matter. Everyone understood the Spirit had been poured out on them. Priests were anointed with oil. They uh, made communion between God and his people possible by representing God to the people and the people to God, as well as offering sacrifices of communion and of covering for sin. Uh, in the ancient world, when you made a sacrifice, usually you ate part of the sacrifice. There was a particular kind of offering that was undertaken, which was considered a peace offering or a fellowship offering. You actually would go and have a meal with the priest who was there representing God. It was like you were having a meal with the Lord himself. Uh, something similar happens in churches today with the Lord's Supper. The Lord is considered the host of the meal. Uh, he is not the bread or the cup, but he is there to spiritually to distribute the same so that we may be nourished by him. So uh, that is what the priest would do in the Old Testament, have that meal with the people on behalf of God and would bring God and the people together. Kings were also anointed. They were chosen to execute the reign of God among his people. They were responsible for upholding the pri or for holding the priests accountable in their work and restraining false prophets and false religion. So the king was in charge of making sure the law of God was carried out. As you read the Old Testament, you'll read very often kings would purify the temple, they'd remove any idols that had been put into the temple, they'd take idols out of the whole land, they would simply eliminate places of false worship, they would stop false prophets from preaching. Their job was to make sure the people were following God. Jesus is called Christ, anointed one, because he holds all three anointed offices in one office. He is the Christ, with a capital C. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, and whatever that means, he has it. First, as prophet, he is the ultimate self-revelation of God. In him, God reveals himself in human character, so that we can know God as thoroughly as he can be known. We read in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As creatures, we find it very difficult to understand God. If you uh, go back and listen again to our first sermon in this series where we looked at God, you'll notice there were points where I struggled to explain certain aspects of God simply because it's a mystery. It's higher than the human mind can go. 
God is greater than we are. God is infinite, without limit. I can't wrap my mind around that. If I'm to understand God, he's going to have to come down to my level and make himself known. In Jesus Christ, God took on human nature and lived as a man. Therefore, if you know Jesus, you know the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of the Father. You know he who is God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know who God is. You may only be able to see his humanity, but in seeing his character, you have seen the character of God. In his teaching during his ministry and his teaching through his chosen apostles, Jesus has fit, given the final revelation of God's will to his people. We read in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, the very opening words of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the author is speaking to fellow Jewish Christians, and he is saying, look, you know that a long time ago God gave us prophets. That doesn't happen anymore because we have heard Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. This is the final thing God has to say. There is nothing bigger than Jesus that is ever going to happen to the people of God. There is nothing bigger than Jesus that is ever going to be revealed in this age because you can't get bigger than God. You cannot go higher than the Almighty. Jesus has shown us God's plan to save us through his work. In Romans 3, 24 through 26, we read, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Paul is saying there in this earlier chapter of Romans that God had not poured out his wrath on sin, which was a just wrath. He had held it back. He had refused to carry out his just judgment on sinners in this life because he knew that that wrath would be poured out on Jesus. And so when Jesus came, was born as a man, lived his perfect life, and then died on the cross, finally we saw the righteous judgment of God poured out. We understood fully the cost of our sin, the price that must be paid for what we had done, and we also saw the love of God that he would send his son and the love of his son, that he would be willing to die for us. Well, Christ isn't just a prophet. He's also a priest, as we've already touched on. 
just now. As priest, he brings creator and creature together after sin brought separation between us. As God and man, he establishes unity in his own person. His incarnate existence opens the way of communication and communion. We read in Matthew one twenty three, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Remember, again, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. A little bit of Aramaic as well. So when Matthew writes and he quotes the Old Testament, he actually quotes the Hebrew word Emmanuel, but then, realizing that some of his readers may not know what that word means, he translates it into Greek, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God, or Jesus, is God incarnate. I keep using that word. Uh, many people who studied Eastern religion are familiar with the word reincarnation, to be incarnated again. To be incarnated simply means to be born, to be a person to enter this world. Jesus was incarnated. He took human nature, body and soul, to himself. And he was born a true human being while also being truly God. Two natures, one person. And thus he established communication between God and man and also communion between God and man. That which sin separated, Jesus brought back together. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. As the priests of old had to be clean so that God could look on his people in them, so Jesus lived a perfect life so that God would accept us in him. The priests under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had to be kept ceremonially clean whenever they were doing ministry. There were restrictions on what they could and could not do. They had to wear special clothes when they were in the presence of God. They had to bathe frequently when they were in the presence of God. God's presence was manifested in his uh, tabernacle, which was a portable worship area, and then his temple, which was a stone building in which he was worshipped. And they had to undergo all these rituals for cleanliness' sake, to represent moral cleanliness so that God could look on them and look on his people represented by them and not break out against them. He actually warned them that because he was doing all this to overlook their sins of which they were truly guilty, if they failed to do it, he would just have to bring judgment on them. And he said, I don't want to do that, so these are the rules you're going to follow so that I don't have to do these things. This is sort of the IOU that payment is coming. Well, Jesus didn't just come and keep his body clean. He was truly righteous. And he was righteous as our representative. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I may have read that already. Don't care. It's one of my favorite verses. I'll read it again if I feel like it. Our sin was placed on Jesus when he died on the cross. But also, his perfect life is laid on us when we believe in him. We are accepted as having kept God's law because he kept it in our name. 
He kept it for our sake. We are saved not by the good things we do, but by the good things that He has done for us. He offered Himself on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price for our rebellion so that we would no longer be under God's wrath. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God's wrath that was poured out on Him. He experienced in a moment of time all the pain and torment that should have been ours in an eternity in hell. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a whole book about why Jesus became man. He called it, Why the God-Man. Cur Deus Homo, if you're trying to look it up. He actually came to the conclusion, he said, on the cross, the infinite wrath of God was poured out, but no mere man could withstand the infinite wrath of God. Only God, who is infinite, can withstand his infinite wrath. Thus his divine nature sustained his human nature that it could experience infinity in a limited body, in a limited soul, in a limited amount of time and not be annihilated under the weight. We will never understand what Jesus did for us. We will never understand the suffering he went through, not just the physical torture of the cross, as great as that was, but the greater weight of the wrath of his Father for our sin. Because he has done this, there is now no obstacle keeping God's people away from God. Indeed, nothing is more natural now than that we should be brought to God the Father in Christ, We read in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Christ has taken away our sin and given us his perfect righteousness, nothing is standing between us and God. And God will never cast us away when we believe in Jesus, his son. So he is prophet, he is priest, and as king, he rules over all. Having kept God's law as a man, he has awarded supremacy over creation, both in heaven and on earth. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Jesus was, in his humanity, the descendant of King David. And as the descendant of King David, he was the legal heir to the throne of Israel. But he had to earn the position. David was a sinner. Solomon, his son, was a sinner. Many of his sons were not 
good kings and were not good men. And God had said, I promise you will always have a child on the throne. Your son will reign over Israel forever. But he also made it clear that a son who was disobedient would have to be disciplined, although David's line would never be cast away. If Jesus was to have the throne free and clear, he would have to obey the law of God perfectly. He would have to keep the covenant so that he would be the son whose reign would never end, who would have the throne for eternity. He kept the law. And he has therefore been exalted by God to reign over Israel and over all things. For you see, he is the head of God's people. And since God's people are the heirs of the whole world, the whole world is his domain. We read in Psalm 2, 6 through 9, this is God speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, Zion is the uh, mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is now Jesus, the son speaking. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The father speaking to the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The father declares to the son, just ask and I will give you the world and you will break all the oppressive, sinful political orders and kingdoms and you will reign supreme in righteousness forever. We also know that Jesus as king is the judge to whom all are accountable. All will stand before him to give an answer for their actions and receive what God has promised them from his hand. In Acts 17, 30-31, this is Paul, the author of Romans, speaking in Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. On the third day after Jesus was killed, he came back to life. God raised him from the dead because death is the result of sin. And Jesus never sinned. And he paid the penalty for our sin, which was laid on him on the cross. Paid it completely. Therefore, since sin is paid for, sin's consequences have been fully absorbed, death had no hold on him. Death is a legal consequence of the wrath of God. It is God's judgment on this world. Even Christians who are forgiven of their sins must pass through the discipline of death. And yet, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And so all who believe in him will rise again and live with him as well. Death is not permanent for him. It isn't permanent for any who belong to him. And having already been raised up, this is a declaration that he is the one chosen by God. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead 
at the end of time. I remember watching a British comedy show called Red Dwarf. There was an episode where the characters, uh, they were in this, it's a science fiction comedy, and they were being faced by this sort of artificial intelligence who had made it his job to judge everyone in the world. And one of the characters was terrified when he learned how the judgment worked. The artificial intelligence basically turned itself into you and judged you by your own standard. So you had no excuses. You were being judged by what you thought was right and wrong, so you couldn't run away. And I realized when I saw that episode, that actually makes the fact that Jesus will be the judge all the more terrifying for those who don't believe in him, because Jesus is human as well as God. He, according to Scripture, has been tempted in every way we have been, yet without sin. So we can't look at Jesus and say, well, you don't know how hard it is to be a human. He can look at us and say, you don't know how hard it is. You give in to temptation after a little fight, if any. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself, and he didn't sin. He can look at us and say, you don't even know what the fight is like. We cannot look to him and hope he'll grade us on a curve. He knows exactly what it's like to be human. We have no excuses before him. We see in John 10, 28, he protects his people by his might. That's part of a king's job. Ensuring that we are not led away from him, nor overcome by the power of the world. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This promise of Jesus Christ, that his protection is permanent, that there is no power which can harm us, no power which can separate us from him. He has a hold on us. Part of the job of any in government is to provide safety and security for those who govern. And if they fail to do so, that is one of the great signs of a failure of government. Jesus, our King, never fails to protect his own. His power is what gives success to our work for him. We work by his strength by his might. His people work by his power and his authority. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The Corinthians were dividing. Some said, I am of Paul. Some said, I am of Apollos. Some said, I'm of Christ. I don't care about those guys. And Paul said, guys, you need to understand something. We're not enemies. Paul is not a second Jesus. Apollos is not a second Jesus. We're not fighting each other. He is saying to them, look, I preached the gospel to you. Apollos came later and reinforced what I said, but it was God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, giving the increase. Anything Paul, Apollos, or Billy Graham, or Charles Spurgeon, or Martin Luther or any pastor 
any preacher of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, whatever good has happened or through any of God's people is by the power of Jesus Christ. Now in this day and age, we also need to remember one thing. As the Christ of God, the anointed one of God, his chosen one, Jesus is unique. There is no one else who can do what Jesus does because there is no one else appointed by God to do so. In John 14, 6, we read, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. God has appointed Jesus the Son to be the only way. You know, I mentioned before, I've got children. And this is what I can tell you. If I tell you that I want you to go do something for my child, if I tell you, look, you know, my kid really wants to bring you this letter, you know, let, let my kid bring you the letter, and you don't let them, I'm going to be pretty upset. Oh, my kid wants to help clean up, and you clean up instead of them? Why'd you do that? This was a learning opportunity for my kid. Why are you running a, you know, oh, well, I was trying to do a better job for you. I don't want you to do things for me. I asked you to do it for my kid. You can mess with me, but don't mess with my kid. Some people think they can make their own way to God, that it doesn't really matter if they go through Jesus Christ or not. Here's the thing. Jesus is God's only begotten son. If you tell God, I know you wanted to put your son on a pedestal and make him the only way to you, but I decided you love me enough that that doesn't matter. He's not going to be happy because you disrespected his kid. He doesn't like that. You are not going to please him. You are not going to be accepted by him. You have to go through Jesus. This is a monarchy. This is royalty. Royals want their children respected. They do not want you to establish a democracy. That's not how this works. We also need to remember, even if you try to do it, there's no one else who can do what Jesus does because no one else is God and man. So no one else is able to bring the two together. We read that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, we've already said man cannot reach God. God is higher than us. I know God is everywhere. Theoretically, we're Wherever we are, God is. But I'm talking about taking hold of him relationally, understanding him, communicating with him, knowing him. We cannot initiate that. He has to do it. And he's done it by becoming one of us in Jesus Christ. If we will not accept Jesus, we cannot reach God. He is the only bridge. He is the only point of connection between God and man. If we will not accept him, no relationship can exist. 
There is no one else who can do what Jesus does because there is no one else who is free from sin as he is. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If there all, were all these anointed ones in the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings, why do we need Jesus the Christ? Because none of those prophets or priests or kings could do what Jesus did, and they were men chosen of God. But even they weren't enough, and they admitted they weren't enough. David wrote extensive psalms, which are poems and songs for worship of God. There's a whole book of psalms in the Bible. Uh, go to Psalm 51. You'll read about David confessing his sin, adultery and murder. He was a king. You can do things like that when you're a king, unfortunately. He abused his power. If you're wondering how he did that and wasn't executed by the people of God, it's because he was the ruler. You know, it's a sad fact. He abused his power. King Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived. Later in life, he had married foreign wives who were not of Israel, were not of God's people, and he began to worship their gods with them. Strictly forbidden by God. The whole book of Hebrews tells us nobody, nobody could do what Jesus did. He had to bring that which is perfect. There is therefore no one else who can give us salvation. No one else can set us free from sin and restore us to God's blessing. We read in John six sixty eight to 69 Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus had told his followers some difficult truths. There was a whole crowd of them. It was the crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children that he had fed with the bread and the fish and a great miracle. Uh, the only miracle besides the resurrection reported in all four Gospels. Uh, there might be one more, but I think that's it, or it's one of the only ones. He told them some hard truths. Is the day after they ate, they abandoned him. All that was left to him was the twelve. His apostles, his closest followers. And he turned around and looked at them and said, Do you want to leave too? And that's how Peter responded. He said, we don't have anywhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. You tell us how we can live forever. And you are the Holy One of God. Basically, you're the Christ. You're the one set apart by God. If we go anywhere else, we'll just die. Jesus says things that can be hard to hear and hard to accept, but it boils down to this. You can't go anywhere else because he is the only game in town. There's no one else like Jesus Christ. There's no one else who can give you eternal life. And we receive this eternal life. We receive salvation from our sin. We are saved from the curse of death when we trust in Jesus' work. That's it. There's no price you have to pay. Because he already paid the price for us. You don't buy salvation from God. You don't earn it by doing good things. 
Jesus already did it. Jesus came to save us. That is literally what his name means. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's interesting, Jesus is again from the Greek New Testament, Jesus. If that sounds like Spanish, Jesus, that is where that name in Spanish comes from. It's even spelled Jesus. But interestingly, Jesus spoke Greek, but as his second language. He would have communicated primarily to his own people in Aramaic, which is related to Hebrew. And in Aramaic, his name was Yeshua. If that sounds like the English Joshua, it should, because the Hebrew name uh, Yahushua came into English as Joshua. So his name is in English twice, once as Jesus from the Greek and Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua literally means God saves. That is the meaning. Jesus was named Yeshua, Jesus, because in him God is saving. God has saved his people. His saving work is a gift given to us because God loves us. Jesus saves anyone who trusts in him, no matter what we've done. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care what your background is. Look, I can go toe-to-toe with a lot of people for sins. And if I can't go toe-to-toe with you, I can find Christians who can, okay? Uh, There was a famous prison ministry that was started by Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck Colson, if you've ever heard his name, it's either from his prison ministry or from his time in prison. He was connected with the Watergate scandal under Nixon. He went to the federal pen for it. And it was there he was converted. There he believed in Jesus, and that's why when he got out, he said, you know, we really need to reach prisoners with the good news of Jesus. And he could tell them, I know what it's like to be a prisoner, because he had been in federal prison. Jesus doesn't care what your background is. Read the Bible. The people in the Bible can go toe-to-toe with you. Paul murdered Christians before he became a Christian. Moses murdered an Egyptian. David, adultery and murder. We've already talked about that. I could tell you horror stories. There are stories in the Bible that are a little bit difficult to preach. God is very honest about how awful his people are. Because we need to remember, we don't have to be good for God to save us. Now, once he saves us, he will make us good. But if you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not good. How could God save me? God wants to save you because he knows you're not good. That's what you need to be saved from, the guilt of your sin and its power over you. That's what he's offering. The only thing keeping you from experiencing his saving work is you. If you love sin more than you love him, you will never come to him. If you're hearing this and saying, that's great, but pastor, you just said it. He'll save me from the power of my sin. He'll make me good. And frankly, I'm happy where I'm at. 
I'm sorry. If that's your attitude, I can't help you. If you're not going to give up your sin, you cannot embrace Jesus. Faith and repentance always go together. Repentance, turning away from sin, does not earn us salvation. But it's like driving in a car. If you realize I'm going the wrong way, you have to turn around. If you say I'm going the wrong way and you refuse to turn around, you're going to keep going the wrong way. And you're going to arrive at the destination that going the wrong way will lead you to. If you will not turn to Jesus, it is because you insist on walking with your sin. If you choose to turn to Jesus, by necessary consequence, you've made a U-turn and you can't keep going the same way you were going because now you're following him. Here's the thing, though. He is willing to receive anyone who puts their trust in him. He will bring you into a right relationship with the Father and give you all the blessings of knowing him right now if you will put your trust in him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we pray, Lord, that those who hear may believe in Jesus and trust in him. We pray, Lord, that they may receive the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has died to pay for our sins and lived a perfect life on our behalf. Lord God, we pray that you will bless them to understand and receive this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hope you have a good week. Come back next week when we will wrap up our series by looking at the verse as a whole, considering its message together. Thank you for joining me at the Online Tent Revival. If you'd like to know more about God, His Son Jesus Christ, and salvation and eternal life through faith in Him, I invite you to contact me at onlinetentrevival at yahoo.com. That's onlinetentrevival at yahoo.com. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.